In our day, any person who is in any way connected with conflict is viewed as a troublemaker or intolerant. This is nothing new. People who choose to follow God will inevitably run into conflict and false accusations. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in an expositional study in the life of Elijah. In today's passage, the righteous are accused of being the troublemakers, but in the end, the true troublemakers are identified by God. Well, Phil, a new character gets introduced today. His name is Obadiah, and he seems to get a lot of attention in this passage. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Well, Mark, I suppose somebody who's uh, familiar with the Old Testament might think that this is Obadiah the prophet, but this is actually a different person. He's a godly man who worked for King Ahab in a secular occupation. He was in the royal court. And as our listeners will see today, he gets put into a situation where he finds himself in a spiritual conflict where somebody is telling him to do something that goes against really his commitment to God. And so many of us in so many situations in life, particularly in work situations, find ourselves in places where there's a conflict between what people are demanding for us to do and what God really wants us to do. Well, in the passage, Obadiah exhibits many godly character traits. Could you point a few of them out to us? Well, you know, this is one of those people in the Bible, Mark, that's a minor character that people might overlook. But when you actually look at who he was and what he did, there's so much encouragement to be gained from it. Here's a man who is willing to put his own physical well-being at stake to do what is right and to be obedient to God, even if it costs him his very life. And he did this by protecting the prophets of God. Really, he was acting in the service of the teaching of God's Word. And in doing that, as we'll see, he demonstrates a strong faith in God's ability to provide for his daily needs and for the daily needs of these prophets. It's a great testimony of courage and faith. Well, thank you, Phil. Let's turn our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, and listen to God's Word for us today. This is now the fourth in a series of messages from the life of Elijah. And by this time, we are starting to realize that it is a long, hot, dry summer. The brown lines on the corn leaves widened and moved in on the central ribs. The weeds frayed and edged back toward their roots. The air was thin and the sky more pale, and every day the earth paled. That is how John Steinbeck described a drought in his novel, The Greats of Wrath. That novel is set in the 1930s when the Great Plains became the Great American Dust Bowl. One survivor of the Dust Bowl described the dust storms of those days like this. We could see it coming in my part of western Iowa. At first there was a yellow haze across the horizon. And then as the dust climbed in the hot sky, it became orange and finally brown and the sun was dimmed. In the first minutes, we stood in mute groups just watching, and then the windows were slammed shut despite the hundred-degree heat, and the women pushed strips of rags around frames and sills in a pathetic effort to keep the monster at bay. It never worked. The dust found the crevices and loose joints and piled up in the corners and drifted through the air. 
There was a long, hot, dry, dusty summer like that in the days of Elijah. It lasted three and a half years, the Scripture says, after a long time, 1 Kings 18, verse 1, literally after many days, as if to emphasize the day-in, day-out dreariness of the drought. For more than three years, there had been no rain in the land, nor any dew. Verse 2, we read that the famine was severe in Samaria. F.B. Meyer imagines the famine like this. The music of the brooklets was still. No green pastures carpeted the hills or vales. There was neither blossom on the fig tree nor fruit in the vines, and the labor of the olive failed. The ground was chapped and barren, and probably the roads in the neighborhood of the villages and towns were dotted with the stiffened corpses of the abject poor who had succumbed to the severity of their privations. Back in chapter 17, God raised the dead, and later in chapter 18, he will send fire and rain from heaven. But now we are in the long intermission between those two mighty acts of God. The whole story slows down to show us how badly the drought was affecting the land. There is no escape from the judgment of God. Even the king of Israel is out foraging for food for his animals. A high position is no protection in the day of divine judgment. The people of Israel had put their trust in Baal, the god of rain, but Baal could not help them now, not now that there was no rain. The Lord, the God of Israel, the living God, the only God, had shut rain up in the heavens, and there was a desperate famine in the land. And this passage is a dispute about who is to blame for this trouble Who is to blame for the trouble in society? Why has this happened? Who is responsible for this? Will the real troublemaker please stand up? Some have read this passage and they have identified Obadiah as one of the troublemakers. This is probably not the prophet who wrote the book of Obadiah, by the way. In his portrait of Elijah, F.B. Meyer draws a sharp contrast between Elijah and Obadiah. He argues that by serving as Ahab's chamberlain, Obadiah had made a compromise with the world. He had chosen a secular career over a sacred calling. He had chosen politics over the pastorate. He points out that Obadiah usually calls Ahab his master, verse 8 and 10 and 11 and 14, which seems to suggest to him that Obadiah has divided his loyalties between two masters. Meyer also observes that Obadiah lacks courage, that he is afraid to go and tell Ahab when Elijah has appeared. What have I done wrong, Obadiah asks in verse 9, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? That is the kind of pragmatic view that someone takes when they have been in politics too long, the argument goes. Obadiah is just trying to save his own skin. If he were truly a man of God, Meyer reasons, he would have been fired by Ahab long ago for taking a stand for righteousness. This is his epitaph for Obadiah. Though a good man, there was evidently a great lack of moral strength, of backbone, of vigorous life in his character. 
Now, is that a fair judgment? Is Obadiah worldly, cowardly, ungodly? My own view is that Obadiah is not one of the troublemakers in Israel. He is secular, perhaps, but he is a secular saint. Obadiah is in the world, but not of the world. And he serves as a good model for the Christian who has a difficult secular job. To begin with, see how Obadiah is described in verse 3. It is true that he has a secular calling. The scripture says that he was in charge of Ahab's palace. In other words, he held an important political post. He was Ahab's chief of staff. But see how Obadiah's character is described as he occupies that post. He was a devout believer in the Lord. Literally, he feared God greatly. It was not just that Obadiah was a nominal believer or a marginal church attender. He was godly. He was devout. He was committed to the Lord. He was more than a believer. He was a strong believer. Now, how does a strong believer remain faithful to God in the secular marketplace? Remember, Obadiah's boss was not a believer. He was hostile to biblical faith. We can imagine Obadiah going to his weekly Bible study and saying, I'd like to ask for prayer for my boss who doesn't know the Lord in a personal way. Yet Obadiah does not use Ahab's wickedness as an excuse to do second-rate work. He is loyal to his employer. Since he was placed in charge of the palace, he must have been one of Ahab's most trusted advisors. He shows Ahab respect, even obedience. When Ahab wants to go and find grass for his horses and mules, Obadiah put on his hiking sandals and hit the trail. So they divided the land they were going to cover, it says in verse 6. Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. Obadiah was faithful, not because Ahab was a righteous man, because he wasn't, but because he knew that the king's authority was ordained by God. Now that is exactly the kind of work the Christian should be doing on a secular job, first-rate respectful, loyal work. Obadiah is an example of what Paul was talking about in Colossians 3 when he said, working people, obey your employers in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. You see, Obadiah's faithfulness to Ahab did not prevent him from being faithful to God. He called Ahab master out of respect, but he knew that God was his real master. Notice, by the way, that Obadiah treats Elijah with the same respect in verse 7, calling him Lord, which is the same word as master. As long as Ahab did not ask him to do anything that violated his commitment to God, Obadiah was completely loyal And then when push finally came to shove, Obadiah obeyed God rather than men. He did not let his allegiance to the king of Israel usurp his allegiance to the king of kings. The proof of Obadiah's piety came when Jezebel persecuted the prophets of God. Surely you remember Jezebel, don't you? Ahab's first lady. 
In his exposition of Elijah, William Still describes her as a striding woman, a feminine tycoon, a harridan, termagant, virago, female man. I'm not even sure what all of those words mean, but it sure sounds like Jezebel. (laughs) She started by bringing strange gods into the king's house, and that was bad enough, but then she went after the people of God. What did Obadiah do then when the boss's wife went on the warpath? Did he compromise his faith? Verse 4, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. This man was no coward. He did the kind of thing that only a bold believer would do, at great risk to his own career and his own safety. Obadiah protected a whole seminary full of prophets in the day of persecution. Now, I can well imagine that there are some here who are facing difficult moral dilemmas at work. You may have a colleague who asks you to cover for her with a white lie. You may have a boss who pressures you to cut corners for the sake of a client. You may even have to deal with dishonest policies that are well established in your company. Your obligation before God in those kinds of situations is very simple. Obey God rather than men. If you are involved in something unethical at work, then listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to your conscience. If you're not sure whether something is right or wrong, then search the scriptures and seek the counsel of Christian friends. But once you know what is right to do, then do the right thing, and God will be glorified through your integrity. Obadiah did the right thing. He was a lifesaver. He took a hundred prophets and hid them in caves, probably near Mount Carmel, where there are hundreds of caves. There is a lesson in this action, I think, about the variety of the providence of God. There were 101 prophets in Israel that God protected, but he did not save them all in the same way. God used miraculous means to save Elijah, the one prophet, but he used ordinary means to save the other 100 prophets. He used ravens to bring bread and meat to Elijah. That was extraordinary, miraculous. But when the rest of his prophets were hungry, God used Obadiah to supply them with food and water. Although God is fully capable of a miraculous providence, his usual procedure is to provide for your daily needs through ordinary means. It seems to me that this is a much-needed lesson for the evangelical church. There is a great clamoring these days for signs and wonders. Not long ago, I saw an interview with John Wimber, the leader of the Vineyard Churches. When Reverend Wimber first became a believer, he started to read about the miracles in Scripture, and he couldn't figure out why none of them were happening in his own church. So he went to his pastor, and he said, when are you going to do all the stuff? And his pastor said, well, what kind of stuff did you have in mind? And he said, you know, the stuff, like walk on water and heal the sick and raise the dead. Now, God can do the stuff. And he sometimes does. He did the stuff for Elijah. He even raised the dead for Elijah. And it is easy to imagine how the contemporary church might attempt to market Elijah. 
Elijah would become a faith healer, surely, raising the dead on cable TV. After his show, they would run infomercials about the Zarephath diet, about 101 ways to eat bread and meat every day. But you have to understand that God did not do the stuff for the other 100 prophets, at least not the miraculous stuff. He provided for them in a very mundane and unspectacular way. And that provision was just as providential. The prophets in the cave had just as much reason to praise God when they saw Obadiah coming as Elijah did when he saw the ravens coming. Do not yearn for the extraordinary providence of God. Trust in the ordinary providences of God. Let me put it another way. Contrary to what you may have heard on television, do not expect a miracle. If this passage is any indication, the chances are at least a hundred to one that God will provide for you in the ordinary way. And that is an encouraging thing. All of the legwork you have done during your job search will finally pay off. Or a friend from church will tell you about the apartment that you have been looking for. Or your medical needs will be solved through some regular surgical procedure. Very often, the Lord will use the regular means, including the faithfulness of believers like Obadiah, to provide what you need. But doesn't Obadiah turn out to be a coward at the end of this story, someone may ask? Well, he certainly was afraid. Three times in this passage, in verses 9, 12, and 14, he worries that Ahab will kill him when he tells him that he has found Elijah. But the important thing is this, that in the very end, Obadiah was faithful to the Lord. Sure, he was afraid. Who wouldn't be? Obadiah was Ahab's chief of staff, and he knew full well what kind of a raging temper his boss had, how infuriated he was with Elijah. He knew what his usual methods were for dealing with political opponents. What Obadiah was really saying in verse 9 was, you must be joking Elijah. You can't be serious. You don't know Ahab like I know Ahab. The objection that Obadiah has in verse 12 sounds pretty reasonable as well. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. Obadiah knows how unpredictable the Lord's prophets can be. Nevertheless, in spite of all his fears, he obeyed the Lord. Verse 16 says it all, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. That is real courage, doing what you know the Lord wants you to do, even when you are afraid to do it. That was the same kind of courage that Elijah had, real courage that comes from a living relationship with the living God. You probably do not need me to tell you that Elijah was not the real troublemaker any more than Obadiah was. When the Lord told him to go to Ahab, Elijah did what he always did. He obeyed the Lord. When the Lord says, go, Elijah doesn't even ask how far. He just goes. Verse 15, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Elijah knows who God is. Even though he lives in a culture that says God is dead, Elijah knows that God is a living God. He has brought himself under the authority of that living God. He serves the living God, and he is going to serve him this 
very day. Elijah was no troublemaker, not in God's eyes. But Ahab thought he was. Ahab thought that Elijah had been making trouble for Israel, and so he tries to pin the blame on him. In verse 17, we finally have the long-awaited, much-anticipated, widely-publicized meeting between the king and the prophet. When he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab gives Elijah no friendly salutation. He greets him with no kindly respect. He seems to have been looking for Elijah for so long that he could hardly believe his eyes when he found him. Like Obadiah back in verse 7, he says, Is it really you, Elijah? You see, Ahab had organized an international manhunt for Elijah. He had sent out an all-points bulletin for his arrest. Zobadiah explains in verse 10, There is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. Ahab wanted to make sure that nobody was granting Elijah asylum. Elijah was on Ahab's most wanted list because he held him personally responsible for the famine in Israel. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab's vendetta against Elijah is a sober warning about what happens to the people of God in days of judgment. First, the world will shut its ears to the word of God, and then it will point an accusatory finger at the people of God. When trouble comes, the people of this world do not turn back to God. They turn against the people of God. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? We can see that in the way that Jezebel attacked the prophets of God. She had her own hit list, and it included every seminary student in the whole country. Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, the Scripture says. This is the way it always is. The religious leaders of Israel said the same thing about the Apostle Paul that Ahab said about Elijah. They hauled him up for trial before Felix in Acts 24, and they said, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. You see, the peaceful work of proclaiming the gospel is a threat to the fortresses of evil. The values of the kingdom of heaven are such a total reversal of the values of the kingdom of this world that the faithful servants of God always seem like troublemakers in the eyes of the world. The same thing happened in the early church. In his life of Claudius, Suetonius speaks of disturbances breaking out in Rome at the instigation of one Crestus, which seems to mean that trouble was being caused in Rome in the name of Christ. In the time of Tacitus, Christians were wrongfully charged with practicing incest and cannibalism as part of worship. Under Nero, the Christians were blamed for the burning of Rome, and they were executed. And for the next several hundred years, it continued to be a capital offense in the Roman Empire to practice Christianity. As Tertullian sarcastically observed, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the cry is, the Christians to the lion. The same thing happened during the Reformation when Luther started preaching justification by grace alone through faith alone. They called him a 
wild boar, a pestiferous virus. The reason John Calvin wrote his institutes in the first place was to defend the Reformation against those who said that Protestant Christians were lawless troublemakers. Well, the world thought that Jesus was a troublemaker too. There was never a troublemaker like Jesus Christ. When he was brought to trial before Pilate, his accusers said, we have found this man subverting our nation. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world had and continues to have a double effect. For those who accept it, the rule of Christ brings peace. But for those who oppose it, the rule of Christ seems to bring nothing but trouble. We should not be surprised when the world attacks the church of Jesus Christ. We do not think about religious persecution nearly as often as we ought to. But the fact is that the church of Jesus Christ is facing more severe persecution right now than at any other time in human history. A recent report called the Annual Statistical Table on Global Mission estimates that there have been between 150 to 250,000 Christian martyrs every year since 1970. 200,000 a year. That works out to about a couple of million martyrs every decade. I cannot vouch for those numbers, but they do remind us that we are not at the center of what God is doing in the world. Christians in places like communist China and Sudan and Iran and Colombia are suffering and dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. They are suffering and dying at the hands of the communists and the fascists and the Muslims. I suppose that religious persecution is even starting to happen in our own country. If you listen to the secular media, you will hear how often fundamentalist and evangelical Christians are treated as scapegoats for social problems. And as our society continues to unravel, that kind of attitude is likely to lead to economic reprisals and eventually to physical violence. Consider all of the churches that have been burned to the ground in recent months in the South. It seems obvious that there is a racial motivation for many of those burnings, since most of the churches that have been burned down have either been black or multiracial churches. But those burnings are a form of religious persecution as well as racial hatred. It is no accident that churches are being attacked rather than businesses or homes. It is the church that poses the real threat to the bigotry of the status quo. In the eyes of the enemies of God, churches that practice racial reconciliation are troublemakers. Now, all of these things should not discourage us, nor should they frighten us. By the grace of God, we can be bold like Elijah was, fearless in the face of an evil king. If the world hates you, Jesus said, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Obadiah is not the real troublemaker. Elijah is not the real troublemaker. Jesus Christ is not the real troublemaker, not really. Christians are not the real troublemakers in society. Stand up. Ahab, you are the real troublemaker, you and all your kind.
Ahab tried to serve all of his trouble on Elijah. But now here is Elijah's return of serve. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. This is the climax of this passage. It is like the scene at the end of a mystery novel when the identity of the killer is revealed. Elijah points his finger at Ahab. He is the one who has brought severe famine to the land. He is the one that has brought trouble to Israel. This word for trouble is the same word that is used in Joshua 7.25 to describe the military trouble that Israel endured because Achan stole the plunder that belonged to God. It is always the people who live in rebellion against God who bring the trouble of God's judgment against their nation. Elijah accuses Ahab of two kinds of sins, sins of omission and sins of commission. The sin of omission is something that you didn't do that you should have done. It is an area of life where you have failed to follow after God. The sin of commission is something you did do that you shouldn't have done. It is a transgression, an area of life where you have deliberately stepped over God's boundary. You can see that Ahab has been sinning in both ways. He has abandoned the Lord's commands, the scripture says. Those are sins of omission. He is not doing what he is supposed to be doing. Plus, he followed the Baals. That kind of false worship is a transgression, a sin of commission. Ahab is doing what he is not supposed to be doing. You can tell what bad spiritual shape Ahab is in by what he does in verses 5 and 6. What he ought to be doing is repenting for his sins and crying to God for mercy. What he ought to be doing for the sake of his people is praying for God to turn away his wrath. Instead, he is trying to tough his way through divine judgment in his own strength. A.W. Pink observes that there is not a single syllable here about God, not a word about the awful sins which had called down his displeasure upon the land. Fountains, brooks, and grass were all that occupied Ahab's thoughts. Relief from the divine affliction was all he cared about. Ahab's main concern here is his animals. Horses were a big deal to Ahab because they were essential to national security. The records of Shalmaneser III of Assyria indicate that Ahab provided some 2,000 chariots when the Syrian coalition battled Assyria at Karkar. Ahab valued horses more than he valued persons. You can see the strong contrast between Obadiah, who is mainly concerned about protecting the Lord's prophets, and Ahab, who is mainly concerned about saving his own horse hides. The only thing divine judgment does for Ahab is make him more selfish, less concerned about mission work, less concerned about biblical teaching in his land. Ahab, you can see, is the real troublemaker. We could draw a contrast between King Ahab and King David, who was a king after God's own heart. David fell under God's judgment too, but when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. 
These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. That was real kingship, real spiritual leadership. He accepted responsibility for sin, not only for his own sin, but also for the sins of his people. That was the kind of spiritual leadership that our own King Jesus Christ displayed when he suffered and died for our sins on the cross. Let your hand fall upon me, Jesus said to his Father. Although Jesus Christ had caused no trouble, although he was not the troublemaker among his people, he invited trouble upon himself so that he might save his people. That is the kind of kingship that Jesus Christ displayed on the cross, and it is the kind of kingship that Ahab ought to be displaying. But he is a real troublemaker. We are going to leave that troublemaker Ahab behind, standing in the road with Elijah for the rest of the long, hot, dry summer. But do not despair. The grace of God is coming. Listen to what God said to Elijah at the very beginning of this passage. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. That is what will happen when God's judgment upon Israel has completed its full measure. The grace of God will again be poured out upon Israel like the rain from heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of this passage of Scripture. We give you praise for the example of Obadiah who teaches us how to obey you, even within a secular calling. We give you praise for the boldness of Elijah. We give you praise for the way that you preserve your saints, even in the days of persecution. We give you praise most of all for Jesus Christ, who took our trouble, the trouble of our sin, upon himself, so that we might be set free to live in peace. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching, that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every Last Word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. 
You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.